The Charles Adler Show starts now. It's done on a Thanksgiving day. Happy Thanksgiving. Of course, it doesn't really matter because it's a Charles Adler Show podcast. And we always want to believe that the wisdom imparted here transcends uh, a 24 or even 48 or 72 hour news cycle. David McLaughlin is who you're going to be meeting in just a a few moments. Uh, This guy has uh, one of the sturdiest work ethics in the political business. He happens to be the president and CEO of the Institute of Governance. We'll talk about that. But uh, most important, he has worked for provincial and federal governments in Canada, among the household names that everyone knows. He worked for the Brian Mulroney government, worked for Finance Minister Jim Flaherty and the Harper government, uh, worked for Bernard Lord, uh, who was the king of New Brunswick for a number of years. He was the premier there and a really good guy. Uh, Brian Pallister uh, in my home province of Manitoba, uh, he was a clerk for Pallister for a number of years, but most important, politically, uh, he ran two winning provincial election campaigns for the Manitoba PCs when Brian Pallister was the leader of the PCs. David McLaughlin is joining us now from his home in Ottawa. David, welcome to the Charles Adler Show podcast. Thanks so much, Charles. Happy to be here. Thank you. We'll we'll bring it to Canada and uh, to Manitoba specifically, but not before we, we, we talk about uh, what's being talked about around the world uh, 24-7. And that's the conflict to Israel versus Hamas. Have you ever in, in your political career uh, done any kind of work for what we, I guess, in general would call the uh, the Middle East peace process? No, I haven't. And uh, uh, and I'm happy for that because that's, uh, you know, to be honest, I mean, this is it's such a hard, hard uh, set of issues there. There's no, uh, you know, clear way uh, out of it. And, uh, you know, hats off and full respect for anybody who digs in to try to find some uh, some solutions on it. But I have witnessed, as any Canadian of my age uh, um, and experience, I guess, or exposure, witness any number of peace plans and peace processes. And uh, it's interesting that we, uh, one of the, the hit movies uh, after Barbie and Oppenheimer is Golda which is a, a bio, uh, biopic of uh, Golda Meir in, in the time that she was a prime minister during the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur is really, uh, that war is, is quite uh, uh, germane to this because at, that was the last time that uh, some 50 years ago uh, that uh, Israel was surprised and taken aback where it, its intelligence failed. And of course, then Egypt and Syria invaded. And, uh, and and Israel was put on the back foot. So some real obvious parallels here. And I guess it's like anything, Charles, you have to look at the history. Um, it's so rich with history and so flawed with history, the Middle East, but you cannot ignore it if you're trying to figure out a way out. So 50 years and, and some days ago, uh, the Yom Kippur War, Yom Kippur, the, the holiest day on, on the Jewish calendar, Israel was surprised. I, I've never understood this business of being surprised that the enemy doesn't respect the Jewish holidays, but I'll just put that aside yeah. for a moment. This war with Hamas also started on a on a Jewish Correct. holiday, and and once again, the intelligence, which which is supposed to be the best in the world, the the intelligence operation was surprised. And to use McLaughlin language, Israel was was put, and perhaps in some ways is still on the on the back foot here. Because uh, the the amount of Israelis uh, killed in early days is is just uh, enormous uh, when we uh, compare it to uh, recent wars, including the Yom Kippur War, when Israel was 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 attacked not by a terrorist organization but by by nation states, Mm -hmm. uh, including Egypt and and Syria. Uh, I want to get to um, the business of uh, Golda. You mentioned Golda Meir, Mm -hmm. who um, was the prime minister of Israel at the time, even though Israel prevailed. 
as it did in all wars. Yeah. Uh, the public did not forgive uh, Golda no. Meir. They may, may be forgiving her now, but 50 years ago, no. they certainly didn't. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, because you study this much more assiduously than I do, David McLaughlin, but I think Golda Meir was was forced to resign about a year after the, the yeah. war began? Yeah, it was actually a little less than a year. In fact, it was in the next year. There were some uh, legislative elections uh, that followed, and she and her party did poorly. Uh, but one of the things that happened is the power of protest, Charles. There's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's quite uh, stunning in a, in a way, but there was uh, uh, reservists uh, uh, started, a small group of them started to protest outside the prime minister's office uh, 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 in Tel Aviv. And over time, that started to gather attention. Remember, this is 1973, 1974. There's no internet. There's no email. Like, you don't have that social media automatic sort of getting attention. This was a slow burn. But what you had there in Israel was the military. Military, uh, you know, reservists, average, you know, Israeli citizens, citizen soldiers saying, you messed up. And that started a uh, a whole a bit of momentum that led to her losing uh, legislative elections and ultimately having to resign. There was an inquiry, et cetera. So that uh, is baked into Israel's DNA. And I'm sure there's lots of folks there now talking of that kind of parallel. And, and this will not end well, uh, you know, for anybody, perhaps, that's in certain respects. But politically, Mr. Netanyahu and his uh, and his government is going to wear this. No question. Right. So, so we, we've got a situation where uh, Israel was surprised. Now, I want to offer some context here. The domestic affairs of the Netanyahu government have been rather messy. Mm -hmm. You talk about uh, protest. We've had literally hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the streets. I I don't want to get into the the, the bowels of what the issue is with Netanyahu and the Supreme Court. I don't want to get too much into domestic politics. Suffice to say that many people who have been completely agnostic about uh, who governs Israel and, and domestic politics have been warning in in recent months that the disunity in Israel uh, could threaten national security. Some people saying that were seen as alarmist. How did you see them then? How do you see them now? I I think it's a legitimate concern. I mean, if you think... Uh, uh, about the nature of, of the Israeli state and how uh, uh, individual citizens, uh, you know, serve in the you know, there's that form of conscription. They they uh, they are reserves in the reserves and that and the uh, the demand on each citizen to help defend the state. I mean, this is the one unifying piece of Israel. As you look at it from of the Israeli uh, uh, you know society as you look back in a very you know uh, divided society these days, especially. Uh, of late, as you said, because of what uh, Netanyahu is, is doing in his judicial uh, uh, reform. So, um, you know, it's nothing like a conflict and, and, a, and a crisis to unite people, but they'll be united, uh, you know, uh, for a while uh, until we see where this goes. And at this point, nobody can absolutely predict where, uh, you know, where it's going to go. There will be a reckoning. There's going to be a national security reckoning. There's going to be a political reckoning. There's going to be, uh, uh, you know, reckoning of, uh, unfortunately, for lives lost on, on on all sides here. And so it's it's just like there's there's nothing good you can say about this, uh, about what's happening now. And we're we're and and predicting what is going to happen, Charles, is uh, you know it's uh, it's a mug's game to a certain degree. Help us understand something. We're getting conflicting reports about whether or not. Uh... Israeli intelligence, uh, the the so-called IDF, the mm-hmm. Defense Force, whether or not it had uh, warnings, because of course uh, uh, they've got satellite photos over all of, all of Gaza all the time, and uh, there have been reports that there were warnings that the uh, Hamas military wing was doing some sort of rehearsal, mm-hmm. or it looked like a rehearsal for a, a substantial 
operation. We, in, in fact, uh, have the Israelis uh, on record saying that over a thousand uh, Hamas terrorists did get into Israel, which sounds like an amazingly high number. So here's my question. Uh, the the, the storyline is that uh, warnings were offered uh, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he ignored the warnings. He didn't take them seriously. It's, 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 it's hard to believe, not because I'm carrying any water for Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. I just think, based on what I do know, that if the Israeli Defense Force and the various security agencies of Israel, which I guess uh, make up the Israeli intelligence ecosystem, if they're aware of something serious, whether or not uh, the prime minister is taking it seriously, the defense forces do take it seriously. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, they need authority to act. And what we don't know uh, yet is is like what was happening inside, what kind of distractions there, what kind of governance, if you will, inside was uh, in place to take this information and do something with it. The uh, Israel has not been afraid to take preemptive strikes in the past. So with this kind of buildup, and I've read those same stories as you, Charles, and, and they're quite stunning in a way, like this was almost in plain view, really. And it seems like, um, uh, on the surface anyways, that folks didn't believe they weren't believing what they were seeing with their eyes or they weren't, you know, one and one equals, you know, uh, equals three. They weren't figuring out that, in fact, this could be a dress rehearsal and some sort. No, they would never do that. Well, you know, um, uh, uncertainty and uh, and uh, and surprise is the uh, is the best weapon in, uh, in, in conflict. You know, I'm sure, you know. It was probably, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was probably a, a Chinese philosopher, you know, that uh, that said that. But this is this is the case. So what did they what did they do with it? I mean, this is going to have to come out, uh, uh, no, in some kind of inquiry. What we do know is is that uh, they were surprised, they were taken aback, people's lives were lost, and and this terrorist group, uh, Hamas, uh, you know, scored a major initial victory. We'll see where it goes in, in the end. Uh, I suspect they're going to pay a very punishing price. Uh, but uh, for now, uh, you know, uh, they they are uh, they are leading the, you know, uh, they're creating the momentum here for, uh, for their cause. Let, 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 me de- let me just uh, develop this a little bit here because I, I'm still a bit foggy. If the head of Mossad or the head of Shin Beit or the head of the mm-hmm. IDF, if the, if the, if the head of uh, Israeli intelligence or, or the military. If, if, if a senior official says to the prime minister, look, these guys are, are planning to send hundreds of, of people, maybe even a thousand over the border. Uh, they're going to be kidnapping. They're going to be blowing up a major event. They're going to be knifing and, and shooting people, um, et cetera. In other words, if, yeah. if, if, they, if, if the prime minister had a heads up of what actually happened less than 72 hours ago, do you, David McLaughlin, believe that the prime minister would just say, uh, nice try, but uh, just, uh, you know, move on? I, I just I have a hard time yeah. buying that. Yeah, it is. It is really hard to believe uh, that that uh, one of two things, that that intel was very clear and direct in a, in a way to act on it. But, you know, you, you don't have to do if you weren't sure you didn't have to do the preemptive strike. You wouldn't, you know, and that but you could have beefed up security. You could have done some other measures, could have been warnings, I guess, to the communities in the area. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some other things that could have been done. Um, uh, look, it's it's a failure almost of imagination. It's a failure to imagine that, you know, Hamas would actually do this, that they would be bold and brazen enough to, you know, to to do that at this uh, at this time, I guess. So it's a uh, Either way, it's a it's it's a failure. So if they had the intel and they didn't act, then they are clearly um, uh, made a mistake, and they're going to pay for it. If they didn't have the intel, it goes to what you're saying, Charles. Like you know, it's almost 
extraordinary to think of that Israel would have its intel its intelligence services would let themselves down. That's the first line of defense for this small state in the world of you know part of the neighborhood of the world that it inhabits. Like the bad, you know, not having the right intel is a guarantee of this kind of thing happening. Is it is it fair to say that no matter what we know at the moment, and no matter what was known several days ago or not known, we will know far more when there is an inquiry done in Israel after this whole thing is over, regardless of how long it takes? Are you confident that there will be an objective judicial inquiry in Israel to find out what happened and what didn't happen? Well, your your last few words, objective judicial inquiry, takes us into the uh, the episode in the history, recent history of, of what uh, Netanyahu and his government have been doing uh, to try to reform, quote unquote, uh, corral, be more uh, precise, I think, the judiciary here. So who runs that inquiry, how it is conducted, and, and uh, that will be really, really critical. But let's, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a reckoning, uh, but Israel is going to have to do it in its own, in its own particular way, in its own uh, political way. I just want to, you know, just going back on the intel for a second, and it's not exactly a parallel, but it shows something. In the intelligence uh, discussion that was going on in Canada about Chinese interference in, in elections, there was the, you know, the David Johnston repertoire report and that, and there was uh, evidence in there about bad governance if you will, about how the intel services were were working together, how they're collecting information, you know, and, and you, they get it in dribs and drabs, right? It's not always a clear path. There's never really, here's the secret memo that tells you the strategy. You put these things together. And the intelligence uh, community in Canada was not well sequenced, let's just say. It did not connect the dots in certain ways. That It's hard to imagine that that could be the case with Israel, given its history and the and the you know, the absolute centrality of good intel for this, but it can happen. And so sometimes, you know, in politics and in life, the simplest solutions and the, you know, the most human basic things are what's going on. Maybe that's part of it here too. Before we move on uh, from the Middle East, there's one critical aspect that I think we need to cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Iran has had a direct role in this particular operation that Iran had to give the green light before it could happen over the weekend. Others are saying that that isn't necessarily the case, but it seems everyone agrees there is a deep connection between the politics of Iran and the massacre in Israel on Saturday. What does David McLaughlin think at the moment of the connection between Iran and Israel and what that may do with international politics going forward? I think there is exactly what you say, a deep connection. Um, uh, Hamas is, as a terrorist group, is funded uh, by uh, Iran and uh, in large part. And uh, whether they take instructions, they certainly are influenced by Iran. But I've also read in in the case of this particular story, I've also read counter uh, pieces, which including from official U.S. sources who are on the record saying uh, they can't draw that parallel just yet. They are not sure and other things. So I think the uh, uh, I, I'm um, I, I think one should be very wary. Uh, of the Iranian connection. I think we should chase it down. But uh, we've also had the experience of intelligence taking us into bad places in the Middle East where that intelligence was not exact. And I'm thinking, of course, of Iraq and and, and weapons of mass destruction. And there is always, in American politics and other politics, there is always a a community, a, a, a clique, if you will, or whatever, that has a view that, uh, you know, uh, something is happening and then for other reasons, 
will try to drive us in that way. Ambassador Bolton, former ambassador, you know, of the UN for under the Republicans and, and that saying this and, you know, well, Bolton was one of the so-called Vulcans, as they said, who who helped develop that whole narrative that uh, that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11. It's not, you know, he wasn't in, in the same way. So I, I'm more worried about where people draw in, uh, conclusions from this and take us down into a pathway of more conflict with, uh, with Iran directly when we're not absolutely sure. But Hamas and Iran absolutely are, are, are linked. What we don't know yet is exactly how they work together or not in this particular instance. David McLaughlin, I want you to just uh, put yourself in the shoes of David McLaughlin, someone who is an expert over the years in working with governments, uh, both provincial and federal. So let's say you're working for Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and you read the story in the Wall Street Journal about uh, Iran giving the green light to make this happen. Uh, do you, as Joe Biden's advisor, tell him that he should go public with his feelings about that? Or do you say to sources that you deal with at uh, at NBC, CBS, the New York Times, what have you, do you say to them that the Wall Street Journal isn't what it's cracked up to be? Is it in your interest as the Biden administration to stay mum about that for now? Right now, you want to keep the focus on Israel defending itself. And so any tr- uh, track, message track or uh, uh, or conversation that takes us into Iran or other uh, actors at, at this stage would be distracting. So it's a good question you're asking, Charles. And I think, um, uh, you know, my advice, uh, if, if I was there, would be to say, focus on what's happening right now. The state, uh, you know, uh, uh, Israel needs to uh, to stabilize the situation, its security situation with Gaza. The U.S. should be all in on that, as should Canada and other and other countries, democratic countries. Uh, there'll be time to chase down these uh, these other uh, elements. Uh, uh, and what we don't know is, of course, how does Hamas respond? Well, they'll defend themselves in that. But how does Iran, Saudi Arabia and other actors in the, in the Middle East respond to this dynamic, which might uh, change you know, the way that the U.S. Uh, deals with it? What we do know is that if America goes, uh, plants a flag and says, it's your fault, um, yeah, that'll get... You know, some people are very focused, but America does not have the same moral authority that it used to have, and it will also create a counter uh, counter uh, uh, push uh, on it. So, I, you know, good question, Charles. I would say, Biden, bide your time. Let me uh, bring uh, U.S. domestic politics into this because mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't matter where it's happening, Israel, Iran, wherever. Uh, domestic yeah. politics still appears to determine how foreign policy is shaped. Yeah. Um, from a domestic uh, political perspective, is it in the interests of Joe Biden to look to look like he's about to start a war with Iran? No, I don't think it is. Um, uh, but he's going to get uh, spanked a bit in the Republican uh, Congress, uh, pr- perhaps unfairly, uh, because uh, very recently the U.S. administration released uh, uh, Iranian assets, some six billion dollars, as part of uh, negotiating to bring back some uh, uh, some hostages and other stuff. And there, you know, it's the time period is so fresh that that uh, uh, Republicans opposed to Biden, opposed to the Democratic administration, will say, "Oh, you gave that money to you know, you allowed Iran and froze those assets. Iran then took that money, bought munitions, gave it to Hamas, etc." Et 
again, uh, like it's not at all clear that that would have uh, been the case. So I think he's got a, already has a bit of a domestic issue that he has to to work through. Um, uh, it, it's I don't see him, you know, uh, declaring Iran as the uh, you know as the number one terrorist sponsor and 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 in the same way that uh, George W. Bush did and axes of evil or, or or what have you. That doesn't appear to be Biden style. Um, and I think it would be premature. I mean, Israel is the focus, um, and uh, I, I'm presuming that he's going to keep the focus there. The Republican story about the $6 billion appears to be a canard. I mean, Iran has been uh, yeah. helping uh, Hamas for years. Yeah. Uh, the $6 billion is a, is a recent development. The idea that Iran just cooked this up yeah. in the last uh, few days, uh, uh, you know, is, it's, is, is, is a non-starter. It's nonsensical, yeah. but it's the yeah. politics of it. It's the sure. domestic politics, as you know. Right. For sure, um, and certainly the the, Mar- the Marjorie Taylor Greens and uh, the others. Uh, I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, whether there's a factual yeah. foundation. It's a hell of a story. Yeah. Now, more with Charles Adler. Let me uh, bring this now uh, to Canadian politics and Manitoba politics specifically. But before we do that, when I introduced David McLaughlin as the CEO of the Institute of Governance. Governance, yeah. What, what, what does that mean? What, what do you do? Uh, we do two main things. We help uh, government organizations uh, perform better. We help uh, do audits of the way that they govern themselves. We look at everything from their decision-making process to their uh, values and ethics. Are they aligned with their mission, et cetera? And we help them work through to deliver better outcomes. I mean, I'm, I, you know, good government is really a function of good governance. I mean, you know, you know our uh, the BNA Act, right, Charles? Peace, order, and good government. You could strike out government and put in and insert governance. You'd have the same sort of... Uh, uh, the same issue, the same preset. The uh, the other thing we do is we help train public servants. We teach them how to be good leaders, how to deal with the contemporary issues, uh, and uh, and uh, and serve better. So governance is about outcomes for people. It's uh, uh, you know whether we have good governance helps determine whether things like uh, you know healthcare is delivered the way we want, or whether um, you know our airports run on time, uh, you know the right way, etc. It's 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 the way we work in government. And so that's what we do. We help our nonprofit, small charity, and that's our gig. Does poor governance, or let's call it uh, incompetent uh, governance, does it threaten democracy? No question. No question. Because people, for two reasons, I think, Charles. Uh, one is uh, people give up on government um, and they start to, uh, and then that takes you to the second thing, is they start to make assumptions about what's going on there and why decisions are being made. It's critical that we have transparency and accountability in, in, in how decisions are made in order for the public to adhere to them, whether it's public health orders in an emergency or whether um, in a public health emergency, but also uh, a foundational for democracy. Democracy works when you have two basic conditions, a clear winner and a good loser. You have to accept losers. Like if you lose an election, you have to be able to accept that I lost the election and, 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 and therefore it's somebody else's turn. The whole you know, dynamic, as we see in the U.S., of course, is, uh, is uh, you know, the, the elections uh, were rigged, or, et cetera. I mean, this is inimical and, and corrosive to democracy. And we're seeing some of that being, of course, imported into Canada. So, yes, to me, governance is incredibly central to our democratic system, the way we work uh, uh, and that. And and uh, we don't pay enough attention to it. We s- tend to think that things will just happen. We demand instant gratification from government. Why is the decision made yesterday? Why aren't the, the perfect across the board? Why doesn't everybody get the same thing? I mean, that's not life and it's not the way government works. So there, there's work to be done, Charles. 
But at, at the granular level, it, it's fair to say that uh, not getting people their, their passports when they're expecting them, yeah. uh, the airports uh, not, not running uh, properly in other areas yeah. of, uh, of competence and incompetence. For instance, if it would have taken us another six months to get the vaccines, those are the kinds of things that make people feel that uh, democracy is not what it's cracked up to be. Is that it, right? Yeah, uh, sure. The, uh, and it's central. I mean, if government isn't there to do what it's supposed to do, what's the point? Right. It's it's as simple as that. And and I think uh, governments that lose sight of what uh, of delivering services to people and staying connected with people are running real risks of of uh, of, as you say, this this democratic corrosion, I think, is going to is occurring. And I think uh, that's a lot of it post covid, but with some of it was before. And I, I think we're into a trust crisis for sure. So there was an election in Manitoba uh, mm-hmm. a week ago. Now you've got a good deal of experience with the elections in Manitoba because you ran uh, two of them very successfully for Manitoba Progressive Conservative leader Brian Pallister. Uh, those were big successes, big majorities of the Manitoba PCs. Right now you'd have to say they had a, a big uh, fail. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a discussion um, uh, that, that's been generated by uh, the manager of the campaign, Marnie Larkin, that there was some sort of intelligence, some sort of research telling them that in a 57-seat legislature, things were going so badly for the Manitoba PCs, not just in Winnipeg, but in rural Manitoba, which is their base, that uh, they were going to be down to 12 seats. Now, you you published a, a graphic, or a graphic has been published, and you've posted it on, on your Twitter feed having to do with seats in Manitoba. And I, w- I wonder if you'd give us a, mm-hmm. a, a, a response, first of all, to, to the notion uh, that uh, the government was threatened to the point of of losing uh, so many seats that it would be just down to not even a baker's <laughs> dozen, but only twelve. But what what do you make of that comment? And and what about this graphic? Uh, well, there's spin in politics, as you know, uh, but that's windmill size spin. I mean, that's just it. It doesn't hold up. Uh, it doesn't hold up when you look at past elections. The last time the Conservatives had twelve seats in Manitoba was 1953. It was just never going to be uh, like that. There was no question this was an NDP election to win, uh, but the idea that the, that they were uh, the conservatives were down to that low level of support it just doesn't bear any resemblance to the to the facts either past history or as you look at this at this graphic. So if you're looking at this graphic here, what do you see? You see the uh, the NDP seats at the top and the conservative seats at the bottom with that one lonely red liberal in uh, in there, and it's in descending order for the New Democrats in terms of uh, how they got to their majority. They got to 29 seats when Kirkfield Park uh, uh, flipped to them. And then that was 29, and then that's a majority. And then they got the rest underneath. Uh, you can you can see uh, there uh, 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 Dauphin, McPhillips, Waverly, Lejeune-Modier, and that brings them up to their, their 34. And then you look at the conservative seat. So the you know Brandon West, usually a good conservative seat. It was tight this time. And so, yeah, you can maybe make a case something was happening in Brandon, but look at Tuxedo. I mean, Tuxedo has always been conservative. It was a narrow conservative win, largely because of the incumbent MLA and leader of the Conservative Party. I mean, I don't think there's any question there was a vote against her in that riding. But for the Conservatives to have been down to 12 seats, then you you have to look at all those other blues underneath, count them up. You know, and I take another 10 seats away. They had 22. Take down, take them down 10 more seats and say that those all would have gone NDP. There was no evidence in the campaign that that was the case. And none of the public polling bears that out, uh, Charles. So uh, that would have, if, if they were worried about that in the campaign, that meant they had to have been polling in rural seats. I've yet to hear of any 
campaign strategy makes any sense to poll in safe conservative seats. Like we we never did in 2016, 2019. You poll in your target seats in order to, you know, to pull them across, see what they, you know, what works for you. So I don't think it holds up. I understand why it's being propagated. It's uh, it's a way to sort of deflect blame and responsibility, but the evidence just isn't there. So I need to ask a communications question. Look, Manitoba is not a village. I mean, it's a province. It's got over a million and a half people. But the problem is when we're talking about ridings, uh, ridings are like villages and everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody. And yeah. most most people, especially in rural Canada, are, are families who, who have been there for multi-generations. They know whether or not they've given up on the Manitoba PCs. They know whether or not there's an existential sure. threat to the rural base of the Manitoba PCs. So they all know that this is just, to be polite, blarney. Yes. It's a communications question. I want to ask you, David McLaughlin, you're an expert in public communications. What is the point of any campaign manager? And it's not about her. She is speaking for the Manitoba PCs. This is about the credibility mm-hmm. of the party. What is the point in, 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 in telling a yarn that is obviously a yarn? It's all for personal redemption, I guess. It's like, I, I mean, I have the only thing I can think of, it's like, don't blame me. Like it's, I somehow wasn't responsible. And that's, you know, uh, there's no sense of accountability or responsibility that, that, that goes with that. So that's, it, it's a made up factoid. And if, you know, we know enough in, in, in these days, if you, you know, kick around a fact, a quote unquote fact, a number or something like that, and you, you know, eventually, you know, it might stick. And that's why it's important to sort of show what's happening here with the, uh, with the basics. If you look at the election, this was not a change election, Charles, in, in Manitoba. It's about 55% turnout. The last time the, uh, uh, the turnout was higher than 55, and most recent was 2016, when Pallister won, was about 57, almost 58%. 2011, 55%. 2019, 55%. 2023, 55%. So this was a fairly stable electorate where seats were kind of moving around a bit. But the idea of if that if they were down to 12 seats, then there, you would have seen this more massive movement of votes that went out. In fact, look, I was looking at the numbers. The NDP got 221,000 votes uh, this time out. In 2019, the Conservatives won with 222,000. In 2016, with 232,000. So it's not like, and that's not a, a, uh, an existential threat. You know, uh, 222,000 NDP votes is not an existential threat to the Conservatives. It is a change of government for sure. So I think the, com- the campaign was so controversial in the end because of the, of the anti-search the landfill fill ad, you know, terrible, terrible, you know, ad in all sorts of levels. But the evidence is very clear to me, Charles. The campaign was lost before that ad came out. And it was lost for strategic reasons that, uh, uh, that have to do with a lot of positioning, the way that the government and the premier acted, the fact the premier wasn't even out on the campaign trail, basically voting non-confidence in herself. I mean, there's so many factors in there uh, that come into play. Well, you know, we're involved in... Uh... <laughs> I'm a baseball fan, For forgive me for this, but mm-hmm. I, I do a lot of baseball metaphors. So we're involved in the baseball playoffs right now, in the major yep. leagues, the divisional series on right now. And you've got some teams like the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Baltimore Orioles who played extremely well during the regular season, but now in the playoffs, not so much. I mean, it's fair to say that regardless of the credibility that the Manitoba PCs have had over the years in this province, it's fair to say that just like the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, that got blown away in in game one, Mm -hmm. regardless of how strong the Manitoba PCs have been over the years, 
in this particular campaign, they got wiped out because they ran a piss poor campaign. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, look, uh, it was going to be tough for them. You know, it was second term. It's always tougher going into a third term, but it's been done. No, uh, you know, no election is preordained. The results are never preordained, right? Things move around. There's always surprises. Things can happen. Uh, but the, but um, Heather Stephenson, as premier, had two years to change the trajectory of her government and present herself in as a new kind of leader, if she wanted, um, and and gain the the, uh, the trust of Manitobans. Uh, Brian Pallister gave her an unprecedented sort of two years to do that. In my judgment, doesn't often happen. She failed in, the, in that. So that's why I say going into the campaign, there was lots of things that were going against the government and the PC party, but they were a lot of them were self-inflicted. The campaign then added to it. Uh, imagine a campaign that says we're a fixed election date and they take a vacation for a month where they basically ceded the crowd to the NDP, which gave them open territory, open water to start to define themselves, put the issues out there. And that was the time when healthcare came out so strongly, we knew it was good, everybody knew it was going to be an issue, but Wab Canoe grabbed it and was clear on it. He made, he went after affordability, he talked about a gas tax cut. Affordability should be a conservative issue. And they gave that away. And then he would use that time to talk about himself and his personal journey of redemption, et cetera. Very important speech. Uh, and again, he was able to define himself. So in a way that inoculated him to when the conservative attacks came later on, that, you know, he had this carapace of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, support for himself that, he, that, that uh, the conservative attacks couldn't, couldn't pierce. The conservative campaign allowed that to happen, and which is almost political malpractice, if you will, in terms of running campaigns. There's lots of things that were kind of going on, but they lost. And Mr. Canoe, I don't want to take anything away from Mr. Canoe and his team. They earned the win. They ran a good campaign, Charles, and they, they deserve the win in this instance. So two-thirds of the uh, seats in, in Manitoba, because two-thirds of the population of Manitoba is in Winnipeg. Yeah. Winnipeg is a middle-of-the-road uh, community. I, I yeah. know that sounds very, uh, you know, sort of uh, milk toast, uh, but, but, but it but it's is. True, it's true, but it's also it's true. A, it's, it's a moderate community. We, yeah. we, in Winnipeg, we don't tend to take extremists uh, right or left very, very seriously. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to be left, be center-left. You're going to be right, be center-right. Yeah. Uh, it would appear that there are people inside uh, the progressive conservative party right now who don't seem to, they, they're almost allergic to the word progressive and they want to take the, the, the party to the right. I, I get how that can work out mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan and Alberta and maybe some other parts of the country. This is my adopted home province. I, I find it impossible that that works in the city of Winnipeg. You've got lots of experience in Winnipeg. What is your thought, David McLaughlin, whether or not uh, it's um, credible and uh, wise to move the Conservative Party in Manitoba to the right. If they, if the party does that and continues on the path that they portray t- uh, to Manitobans at the end, they will guarantee NDP wins for a long time. You need to win. I mean, the electoral math doesn't add up for any party unless you win seats in Winnipeg. Uh, in the night, in the 2019 campaign, uh, we had a mantra inside the war room. It was called uh, "Women in Winnipeg." That was the demographic. That was that we that the party needed to win, in order to make certain one government. Classically, conservatives win with male voters. Less so. There's classically again a gender gap where female voters are less inclined to vote conservative out of the gate. 
um, Mr. Canoe was, uh, at the time, his his story, which was still just coming out and was a bit new to people, was unsettling for 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 a number of voters. The story of the story of Canoe's uh, personal personal history, past. first personal right. past, yeah. and the yeah. you know the taxi driver issue, the uh, the uh, issues with his uh, his uh, spouse and partner, and uh, uh, and that that. Um, just uh, I just want for people to be clear because yeah. we've got lots of people tuning in who are not from Manitoba. Correct. Uh, he, had, he had issues with with a with a partner but that was well over a decade ago it's not the it's not the person that he's currently married to yeah, correct right. correct right. and so there was all and he had written about it in his book the way we walk etc yeah. and there was and and for uh, at that time because it was not well aired there were some discrepancies that were for people wait a second here you know he's saying one thing saying another so that uh, but no, i'll come to that in a second but at that time in 2019 women in winnipeg was the demographic that conservatives had to win if they were going to win government, to win seats in Winnipeg, and therefore to form form government, you can imagine a landfill. This landfill ad, which was so uh, so um, you know categorically uh, uh, you know unempathetic. This landfill ad, just so people are clear, the landfill is uh, police believe there are two the remains of two young murdered Aboriginal women in the landfill and various indigenous groups and the NDP and many other people who are in the middle say the only decent thing to do is to at least try to find them. And the conservatives have taken a very, very hard mm-hmm. policy on that. Uh, they, they use the term standing firm. standing firm. They are standing firm against digging up the landfill. And they were essentially boasting about it with, with big billboards during the campaign. And and that uh, got uh, many moderate uh, uh, conservatives uh, rather angry because it was uh, something that made them feel ashamed, and the Conservatives Party responded by doing an ad on re- whether or not you feel ashamed. It's a secret ballot. Vote for us anyway, David yeah. McLaughlin. I think you've summed it up, and that there's not a, a chance that that what you just spelled out would actually move uh, uh, that demographic, female voters in Winnipeg, to conservatives, and that they essentially pushed them away. Even if you had a, a an intellectual view or, or even an opinion that, you know, wait a second, I don't think we should search the landfill. I think it's too much money or it's not going to work. I'm worried about uh, it's not going to yield anything. I'm worried about health and safety of workers, etc. Nobody really wanted it pushed and shoved down their throat in that in that way. It was saying something about the party and that that, that people some people didn't like. And that's what happened. So if conservatives in Manitoba decide that somehow this was just a winning strategy, but just too soon. Like we need to, you know, we like we could do this, but we'll win it next time with this strategy. I think they're deluding themselves. It will not work. That's not where Manitoba voters are. They are centrist and it's not where urban voters are in Winnipeg. And of course, if you don't win Winnipeg, you cannot win the government. Uh, Last question on this, David McLaughlin, uh, having to do with much more than just the, the, Brutality and the, the cruelty of, of the landfill ad. Um, is brutality and cruelty necessary in today's kind of populism? Because it appears to be practiced in certain parts of Europe. It certainly is being practiced in parts of the United States. I will never believe that it works in, in Winnipeg. But is that part of the problem that, that people who are, let's just call them political engineers on the right these days, are so enamored of this 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 politics of brutality and cruelty that they want to believe it works everywhere. I think it's more an us and them mentality, Charles. I think it's it's how it's the worldview of folks in in political parties that see things in a certain way and are very content and satisfied with 
corralling their group of voters and saying, this is the worldview, that only worldview that counts, and anybody else doesn't count. And it's not unifying. It's, it's, it's just like, that's the way we see things. And in order to get people to pay attention uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in a crowded uh, electoral marketplace, they say very harsh things in order to cut through, get that attention, and then uh, get those votes. So it's it, the center is what's at risk here. We used to be in, in politics, you had political parties as big tent parties. They were called brokerage parties. They, they, they brought together the various interests and, uh, and, and found a way to leave in that to, to, uh, to get the kind of, uh, you know, results in a majority, et cetera. It's less and less the case. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think this will, this will not succeed. Uh, but this, it's the center that is really, you know, uh, the, the part, if you're a centrist, you're seen as you're portrayed as not caring uh, about the right issues. Uh, you're labeled, you are uh, seen as being soft on A, B and C or, or what have you. So uh, uh, it's, it's both it, it, it's that dynamic of mobilizing your core vote. And it's also the need to, with so much noise out there in the crowded, you know, communications marketplace, I got to say something really harsh in order to cut through. And, uh, you know, who loses with that, Charles? Democracy, our society. And that's where we're at. Trust goes down. Your, yeah, the turnout goes down. Like participation uh, goes down. Yeah, you can win for a, for a day, but look at what it leaves you. And I think the Conservative Party in Manitoba is now has, is going to learn that lesson. The branding that has happened and occurred to them, uh, to the next leader over this piece, is going to be very tough because of the, what they said and how they said it. And that's that, you know, and they're going to have to find a way to work through it. Speaking as a Canadian citizen, uh, David McLaughlin, thank you so much for being a good friend of the center. And speaking as a podcast host, thanks for being a friend of the show. And we hope to have you back soon. My pleasure, Charles. David McLaughlin, speaking to us from Ottawa. Thank you very much for speaking to your your friends and everyone else in your life about the Charles Adler Show podcast. And of course, you can uh, stream it on any of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, any of them. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thanksgiving day or whenever you choose to listen to this podcast. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.